This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. A school in Puerto Rico finally gets power 112 days after Hurricane Maria. We talk with staff members and a student about what the past few months have been like, literally learning in the dark. Plus, a new report shows American schools are still profoundly unequal. The reasons why make our teachers really mad. Those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined as always by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? Hi, I teach fifth grade. <laughs> uh, Luann Fox, what do you teach? I teach high school English. And Luann, we really appreciate you being here, even though you may be coming under the weather. The flu has been... Um, a problem here in the Kansas City area over the last few weeks. Jason Staliga, what do you teach? High school biology, chemistry, and physics. All three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. In the past week or so, you may have seen a cell phone video that made the rounds on the internet and social media. It shows the moments immediately after the power came back on at Academia Bautista de Puerto Nuevo a small private Christian school in San Juan, Puerto Rico. This was significant because power had been off at the school for 112 days, ever since Hurricane Maria barreled through Puerto Rico in September. The school reopened three weeks after Maria, so students and teachers had been going to Academia Bautista for nearly three months without power before the morning of January 11th, when suddenly and without warning, the lights and air conditioners and everything else electric in the school powered back to life. So this viral video shows teachers and students running out of their classrooms in a joyful frenzy, children in classrooms standing on their chairs and desks screaming. It's a moment... Both heartwarming and also a little bit heartbreaking when you consider how long the students and their teachers went trying to learn without power. And we should say many of the school's students and staff members still return to homes without power. Well, this is a, a special segment for us. We have invited in um, several special guests who join us by phone from Puerto Rico. And leading them is Josue Gomez. He's an administrator at Academia Bautista de Puerto Nuevo, and he joins us, as I said, by phone from Puerto Rico. Senor Gomez, thank you for joining Hi. us. How are you? Hi, I, uh, thank you for this invitation and uh, for this opportunity to tell the story, the whole story behind the video clip that one of our teachers made uh, by, you know, by accident, I, I see, but uh, it, it, go, it went viral, so... We are in the spot right now. <laughs> yeah, and we should say you do have uh, a couple of staff members with you and a student as well, and we will want to talk to them too. But uh, let me ask you a question first. So um, you mentioned this viral video. It was maybe caught by accident. Um, you were at the school the moment the power came back on. Just describe what it was like in the building at that moment and immediately after. Maybe one of the, of the people that I already invited to this uh, conversation and made more... Uh, my most, that moment clear, Brenda Lee, one of our staff members, that I, I, she's at the middle of the school when the electricity, hmm. came, electricity came back, so she can describe uh, that moment better right. than me. Well, Brenda Lee, uh, you work at the school. What do you do at the school, and what was that moment like? Well, I'm a chaplain at the school. First of all, thank you. Thank you for having us. 
after well after experiencing what Maria, the aftermath of the Hurricane Maria, um, well it, it, it was a uh, it was a symbol that normality was back to the school, right? It was part of, of, of knowing that, you know, after all this time something good was happening among among the, the institution. Yeah. Just any of you d- describe what the previous three months have been like for you, um, as you've you've been back at school, but the power hasn't been on. You know, uh, despite the fact that we ha- we are in the Caribbean islands, so the the temperature is very very hot here, and without electricity, we can turn on the air condition. So the the classroom uh, is turns very very hot. But to describe uh, what's going on in the classroom, I let uh, Miladis. Okay, I'm a teacher of ninth graders, so we have to turn to some old strategies, for example, using cardboard and newspapers and trace paper and make groups to study together and write more on the board and so on, because there was not internet, and there's no movies, and there's no PowerPoints, and no Prezi, but they still are coming because they can eat um, hot meals on school, not in their houses. So it was so hard to to make it going on, to make it going on. You mentioned you only, I mean, you opened just three weeks after the storm itself. Uh, what was that like, and, and why did you feel it was um, important to get back to school, even if, you know, your facilities were not in the in the state they had been previous to the storm? Yes, uh, primarily because we are a private school. So uh, at that time, if, if we're not able to, to, to receive students, uh, Maybe we can lose more students that we already lost in the over the past uh, three months. And also because it's a reason to let them know that we're ready to start, and um, we are. We want them to know that um, no matter what's happened on our island, we are ready to start and receive them, because that's our job also. Maybe Brenda Lee, maybe Brenda Lee can talk about you know the, the families because uh, we have a, a lot of, of struggle uh, between our families, uh, a lot of damage, and we mm-hmm. have to bring some hope. Part of the opening was also to let them know that you know we need to keep on, you know, and the doors are open. Right. Your school, your second home, it's mm-hmm. open. Right. Come back so they would know there's a safe place. Besides your house. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go. Oh, I, I really applaud that, actually. Um, and I'm so sorry that your school was um, without electricity for like a quarter to almost a third of a, of a whole calendar year. My question mm-hmm. um, is something about the character um, of your place. And could you talk about maybe what you've learned about the power and the ability of your school and your students um, to conduct business without power on in your building? I mean, What'd you find out about your students? Um, well, first of all, um, we were amazed how our students reacted. Um, after, like, five days after the hurricane, we made a meeting with all our staff and our professors, and we started talking about how to receive our students, how to debrief whatever they were feeling, and, 
and you know we were very worried about them. Um, but when we received them, and I think Mrs. Miladis can speak a lot of a uh, little bit more about that. But when we received them, um, uh, we were amazed how they were dealing with the things. They were dealing with with the issues better than we expected. <laughs> um, they were adjusting to the changes. Obviously, everyone brought their conflicts and their issues to the classroom, and you know we tried uh, to deal with them and to identify where were the damages. Um, what families needed most, what families lost their rooms or their houses or their furniture or their things because of the flooding, and try to uh, uh, cover those necessities. But actually, we were they were so good at adjusting and, and understanding what was happening. And there is a student there. Um, can you go ahead and uh, get on the line and introduce yourself? And, and you, a- you answer that question. What did you learn about yourself um, and, and how you learn... Uh, during the last three or four months. Uh, well, hi, I am Jarrell Gomez. I'm a senior in high school, of course. I was also very impressed with uh, with my my friends and how the teachers were able to adapt so quickly to the situation. But I also, you know, realized that there was really no no real hindrance to what you can to our education. You no, know? just because there's no electricity doesn't mean we can we we stopped learning. If anything, we actually learned more because we, we as uh, Miladi said earlier, we had to go back to our earlier ways of learning. Uh, you know, not just a simple go to a website and get your information, write it down, and that's it. You actually have to go out, go to a library, consult your friends, you know, do actual practices so you can keep up with the work. And I think all of the students learned how to be more responsible in that sense. Yeah, Yarla, you should know that the teachers here are nodding their heads vigorously. I think they think that you could probably teach their students a thing or two, I think. (laughs) Uh, uh, Um, Maddie? Yeah, I have a question um, for you. What's something that you would want um, my students to know about your life? And it, it can be limited to... Um, the impacts that Maria has had on your life and what that looks like. But, I mean, I know that there are other things that um, you might want to bring awareness to outside of the impact of the hurricanes that have been going on before that um, occurred. So just, I'm, I'm really excited to share this conversation with my students tomorrow. So what's what's something that you would want awareness um, to be brought to my students in our classroom? And most of all, just not let your education be affected outside forces. You know, the most important thing in your life is the ability to gain knowledge. It affects so much of your adulthood, you know. Uh, I also think it's uh, very important that not just, you know, apart from education, you to understand the people around you. You know, like, apart from just education, people actually made time for volunteer work, even these times, because they realize the impact that it was having on everybody around us. So uh, I think if any, I want to say anything to the students, it would be uh, to just, you know, keep keep on going. Don't let anything stop you. No obstacle is too large to overcome. And if you can have the opportunity to help somebody else you see struggling alongside with you, and, you know, you can form that relationship with them and then help them 
with yourself to get across that obstacle. Do uh, many of you um, that I'm talking to now, do you still not have power at home? or What, what is life like on the island itself outside of school? Well, uh, as you may know, you should know that uh, the, 40, the 40% of our island still without electricity. So uh, you, you can conclude that if we are 900, if we have 900 students, at least 300 have no power at their, at their homes. I have uh, my electricity uh, returned to my home uh, at middle December. Uh, Brenda is still without electricity right now. Uh, <laughs> so you may you may know that we are currently uh, working with. That challenge uh, is not uh, is not conclusive for for many of, of, of right. our students and for part of our staff too. Yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of you know hear the laugh that you all exchange, but I wonder just how you you feel, Brenda Lee, especially not having. I mean, do you well, still feel f- like forgotten? Do you feel as if you? Know, <laughs> the, if I try to be the voice of the many, many, many people in the central area of the island and in the rural areas, uh, probably they would say, yes, they feel forgotten. It's very frustrating when you, when you uh, hear them and when you try to explain yourself what, why this is happening. It's very frustrating. And, well, if maybe I live in the, in the urban area, but those rural areas, those 40%, uh, maybe 30 or not 30% of those rural areas, they're still without uh, power and really having sometimes no hope okay. <laughs> of seeing it. That, that's the truth. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, well, uh, Josue Gomez, uh, Brenda Lee Belev, Milari Hernandez, and Yaro Gomez, I mean, I, we really, really appreciate talking to you. And Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you. I li- wish you all the best. Um, it's been really impressive to hear your stories and how you've persevered, as Yaro said, but thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that behind the video clip is thousands of stories, a successful story. And, uh, and there's hope and there's joy. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. A report published this month by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, that's an independent bipartisan group, makes a distressing, if not totally surprising, conclusion. America's schools are still profoundly unequal, despite the landmark Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court decision of 1954, which, of course, enshrined the right to an education for all American children on equal terms. The commission concludes that schools in the U.S., are still plagued by vast inequities in terms of both the funding they get and the outcomes they achieve. The report finds that these inequities impact low-income children and children of color disproportionately who are oftentimes relegated to substandard school facilities with peeling paint and leaky roofs, just to cite a few specific examples in this report, and also by and large learn from less experienced teachers and have access to fewer high-quality instructional materials and a smaller range of educational opportunities at school, 
All this, of course, is affecting the achievement of these students who remain significantly behind their wealthier white peers. This report lays out reasons why this is the case and also makes several recommendations for what can be done about it. And we're going to get to those. This report is 158 pages long. So in preparation for talking about it, we have divided and conquered. We each took a section an old teacher trick. Jigsaw. Method. Jigsaw, the jigsaw yeah. reading method. And we are now going to report back to the group and to our listeners about what we read and the main points we think should be remembered. Uh, this may be tough when we try to hold you to, you know, a minute or two minutes. I vote Luann goes first. <laughs> I think, it's I don't all know. really important. Maddie, I, is this just because you don't want to go? <laughs> no, I had, well, I had chapter one. But you had my, chapter one. Well, let's start with chapter, chapter one. Let's was, start with chapter one, intro. then. Yeah. Okay, okay. Which I, I gather from the table of contents is kind of an overview of the history of, yeah. of, of efforts to make schools more equal. So take it away. Chapter one, what did you learn? Um, I learned a lot of little summaries about the flow that um, education policy has gone through like all the different channels kind of like um like if we were at a bowling alley and a bowling ball is the education system and we had our bumpers up it'd kind of be like swinging mm-hmm. one way and the other but like so a lot of people know brown v board of education but right. there's been a lot of twist and turns well, since then yeah plessy versus ferguson mm-hmm. came first mm-hmm. and then brown v board of education and then Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, and then the Coleman Report, and then No Child Left Behind, and then ESSA, and there's more things in between all of them. And the main pattern that kept emerging that was really frustrating but really enlightening for me was all of those different things have remained mostly symbolic, like for me. And that's why the analogy of the bowling ball just being pelted back and forth by these bumpers is really... Like, I want you to have that in your head when you think of education policy because it's like nothing nothing is sticking. Like, it's just kind of like we have Brown v. Board, but then Reagan comes into office and, like, all of this funding is – it's like these loopholes are created so that schools don't actually have to abide Mm. by anything. And, like, even in that Supreme Court decision – um, they said that schools needed to desegregate with all deliberate speed. What does that mean? Right. What does that mean? Like, and even that, I mean, even that wording was used to yeah, to, but, to allow school districts to uh-huh. to and like all the while, deliberate. yeah, <laughs> and all the while, like schools get funding. Like the Coleman report talked about how schools um, that struggle with low income situations with their students or schools that are um, that have high populations of people of color that they struggle with attendance but like that's what that's what no child left behind and other programs use to give out funding mm-hmm. like you need high attendance to get money but the schools that really need money really struggle with attendance but we need to desegregate but then Reagan took away, like a mandate saying that we needed to use buses to desegregate. Like he was like, well, you don't need to bus people from one place to another. But then how, how is one student in a low-income neighborhood going to get access to, you know, it, just, it, it, it goes back and forth, back and so forth. So remember the bowling lane when you're thinking of education 
law over the past 60 to 70 right. years and, and, and case law that's, that's tried to make school funding and school yeah. achievement more equal. They're saying great things, but they're, they're just not – there's no obligation on states to actually implement the things that they're suggesting, if that makes sense, which is – I'm excited for Luann's chapter because – Luann is coming up. Chapter know, two. Chapter two, uh, which I say um, it outlines how schools are funded in the U.S. and how that structure – um, has created inequalities within the educational system. Luann, you were assigned Chapter 2. What should we know <clears throat> about what you read? Um, right off the bat, to know that more experienced teachers, the higher-paid teachers, the veterans, tend to go to more low-needs places. The teachers that are inexperienced, right, that are starting out, they're the ones that end up going to the high-needs places. Um, that just furthers the problem. But it, it speaks to the tension that I, I really feel as a teacher, you know, that we have in this um, endeavor, right, that we call education, because um, you ask some people, and it's a profession, we're professionals, um, but we are treated like this is a vocation, and like this is way close to social work more than anything, and that tension, it, it, it's very confusing, right, because if I view myself as a professional, and I get more experience at my job, and I'm better at my job. I can't name another profession where the expectation would be that it would be harder every year as I age. I can't think of doctors, lawyers. I can't think of, of uh, architects. I, can, I just cannot. Technolo technological industries. I can't think car, ma car manufacturers. Just as you get older and as you get more experience, should your job become harder and should you fight for a raise in pay? And it seems that it makes sense that teachers who are veterans would be attracted to that, which I guess would be easier because if we are to view ourselves as professionals, that's that's a way to keep our, our own health intact, right? And our, and our own um, sense of what we think about ourselves. However, what does that do for the students at large? And that's a completely other question. And so that tension between, you know, capitalism and socialism, the what is the nature of what we do as teaching um people i just that's that's huge for yeah. me so one of the bigger structural inequalities is this idea that more veteran more experienced teachers are being concentrated in schools and in districts that are lower need schools and districts than than the younger less experienced teachers jason you had chapter 3 with which links funding inequities with achievement what was said there that you think is important According to the National Assessment on Educational Progress, scores have improved for students of colors age 9, 13, and 17, and achievement gaps have closed. And I can see that being this big banner scrolling at the bottom of your TV, but, I, but the listener needs to understand that that gap is still 30, point, 30 lexile points in reading and 25 points in math. Uh, as you go through the article, it then goes into student disciplinary rates and that black students are 3.8 times more likely to receive OSS 1.9 times more likely to be excelled, and 2.2 times, yeah, from school. I thought you said excelled. Oh, expelled, yeah. Sorry. And 2.2 <laughs> times disciplined by law enforcement than their white peers. And another interesting point was that Native Americans who make up less than 1% of the school population, yet they account for more than 2% of OSS and 3% oh, of really? expulsions. Uh, I then went into experienced teachers and that black, Latino, and Native American students are twice as likely as white students to attend schools with more than 20% of first-year teachers and twice as likely to attend schools 
with more than 20% of teachers not meeting at any or not meeting all state certification or licensure requirements. And the study then like segues into, okay, how do we get student achievement? And student achievement comes from high teacher quality, that exposure to high teacher quality, which is those that are certified, those who scored high in their certification exams, those who have a high degree from a more competitive undergraduate institution. And so, so those, those, those students, those high need students that often in, in, in high poverty areas need these high quality teachers, yet the teacher salaries, the education, the experience levels tend to be lower, and yet teacher turnover is higher in districts serving these low need students. A lot so, of issues there. A lot of issues oh, yeah. there. Yeah, Luann, um, jump in real fast. I just wanted to add a conundrum as well, is that I learned that the federal government is not constitutionally obligated to provide public education um, to students, but that every state constitution does have that in their, their which constitution. Is, which shocked me as well, and we'll get to that when we talk about the recommendations, because that was actually one of the recommendations of this report. Once we, once we get to this idea that there is no federally guaranteed right to public education, um, I had chapters four and five. Chapter five was a brief list of recommendations. We'll get to that in just a second. But chapter four discussed how housing and residential segregation affect educational inequality. And the epigraph to this chapter, and this kind of sums it up, is, and this is a quote from a researcher, housing policy is school policy. Um, this section points out that persistent rates of residential segregation are having a major impact on student achievement and school funding. Um, U.S. Census data shows that uh, neighborhoods are becoming more concentrated by income levels, uh, wealthy people living in more concentrated pockets of wealth and, and poor people living in more concentrated pockets of poverty. And this is disproportionately affecting people of color who have higher rates of poverty than white people. The report goes on to say, and this line stuck out to me, that because of this deeply entrenched residential segregation, um, that the way we view education uh, de facto is separate but equal, which goes back to that Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, infamous Plessy versus Ferguson decision from the 1890s. We, we may not say this out loud, but we actually view schools as separate but equal. Because of residential segregation, we have a lot of um, schools that are homogenous uh, in terms of race, um, and we have a, kind of, as a society, come to accept that. The, head kind of, the headline conclusion of this chapter in terms of like what to do about this, they actually really push hard on the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, um, and, and say that HUD can be doing more to incentivize cities and municipalities to have more equitable residential housing policies. Uh, they point out a case from Montgomery County, Alabama, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, an extremely wealthy county um, on the suburbs of Washington, D.C. that also has strict zoning regulations that require a third of housing units to be federally subsidized public housing. So there's a, a pretty well-documented um, surge of, of lower-income people who have moved into Maryland County uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, I'll get that name right eventually, um, <laughs> and have been able to go to the schools in Montgomery County. And those schools, again, based on this idea of residential segregation, are, are very good schools because they're well-funded by um, the taxes in that area. Um, so, uh, again, headline conclusion from this, housing policy is school policy. You can't really change education without um, changing housing policy and asking more from the federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, at least according to this report. So chapter five, I wanted to have all of us talk about the recommendations, and Luann already actually brought up one, so I'll, I'll actually just jump straight to that, right? So one of the recommendations of this report from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights is that um, it seems, I guess, obvious at first um, when you actually read it, but uh, all of us are kind of surprised to learn 
Um, but this is the recommendation. Congress should make clear that there is a federal right to public education. So they're essentially asking for Congress to uh, amend the Constitution to include a right to public education in the U.S. Constitution. Um, that was, I think, surprising to a lot of us. I mean, Luann, you brought it up, but that's that's a big deal. I, I don't think any of us really have a lot of hopes for this particular Congress to do that. Right. Um, but the idea that we do not have a, a federally recognized right to to public education, I think, hit home for a lot of us here. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, like in my whole chapter, that's the part I was excited to talk about because that's why, I mean, the bumpers are up. You know what I mean? Like, take the bumpers down. Say that say that education is important. Say that you need to be held accountable. Like, why are they? Why is anybody in the federal government going to work really hard to enforce any of these things coming out of the federal government when there is no catch on the end of that line? Right. You know what I mean? They're I mean, like, they would, this is they... just something. Everything they're doing, it's like, well, this is extra. Like, we don't really need to be doing this. At all, yeah. because it's already. This and, and, is really the state's job. It's well, like, yes, it's been a long enshrined state responsibility. I think that's what they would argue, right? And, and that's why you know initiatives like Common Core have been so unpopular, right? Because it is seen as a kind of state issue. Luann. Well, I was just going to jump in and add that um, I think one of the reasons Common Core um, came to birth was because you didn't have equity across the states. I mean. Just because uh, it was good enough for Mississippi doesn't mean it was good enough to compete globally, we'll say. Not to pick on Mississippi, but, I mean, why not, I guess. It's just, um, if we're going to be raising students who are going to be globally competitive, um, they shouldn't be um, hampered by, like, their geographic area. Yeah. Jason? I, I'm just thinking about all the listeners out there who who just had the, you know, their mind blown by that <laughs> idea. Uh, by then, the jigsaw? <laughs> and, I, and I wonder how... Like how many politicians understand that? And if you you know you look at the dynamic of public education in in our in our government, it seems like it's a very anti-public education um, for you know school choice, or for charter schools, or for you know alternative methods or vouchers for private schools. And you know it goes back to the idea of Common Core as well. It, it felt like it was you know government overreach, federal government overreach into what really felt like it was the state's rights to develop their curriculum. And she's right, but it, it was there and designed specifically to get equity across the board so that a student who is learning in Kansas City is going to be held to the same objective as someone who is in Los Angeles so that if they were to travel cross-country and go to schools, they would have the same types of skills so that they can be successful in a higher level yeah, I mean, of education. I, I think there would probably be a lot of Americans who would at least read the thumbnail of this report and say, well, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, if it's – if um, you know, if, if a locality, if a district, if a city is in charge of, of their education and it's a bunch of white people living in the same city, so what? Like, what, you know, why, why, should we, why should we try to change that? Why should we have the federal government come and enforce that change? Because some states might think, I don't know, some parts of state history is really important, right? And they're going to mandate that students need to know that. Well, if that student is going to stay in that state for the rest of that student's life, then maybe that's important. But if that student plans to travel and grow in the world, then maybe that particular thing that the state wanted uh, wouldn't be as important and maybe learning some other schools that are transferable across climates and zones would be better. Yeah. Right. And in, in a very homogenized school district, whether it's a white school or a black school, we know through educational studies that diversity is the key to learning within the classroom because you get a respect for uh, the variety of cultures that exist 
And so if, you, if you're not experienced to uh, different views and different ideas, then you, you shut off that in your own psyche and you need to really broaden your mind so that you could be a better successful student and citizen in the world. Yeah, and I mean, I asked Darrell what he wanted everyone to know. In the, and in the, pa- in the past conversation, his, yeah, from Puerto Rico. And his answer was to understand people around you via relationships, to go and to seek out understanding with people who are different from you. And I mean, that's a, I feel like that's, it's a, ten- you could say, well, I don't care about that. But for me, that's a tenant that I want to live by, to try and understand those around me who are different and to embrace that and to leverage those differences instead of reacting in fear to them and avoiding them. I should say there's a a whole set of recommendations as well in this report that urges the federal government to become more active and influential in local school funding on things like incentivize states to have more equitable funding systems, increase federal Title I funding to supplement efforts at funding equity, collect and publish more comprehensive data on school funding, which NPR points out uh, will start happening actually with the new Every Student Succeeds Act. Districts will now be required to track and publish how much they spend per student on a school-by-school basis. Um, And that's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, to know how much your school is spending Mm -hmm. compared to the school down the road or the school on the proverbial other side of the tracks. I mean, what could Mm -hmm. that illuminate to you if you know what your district spends by school? Well, I would like to know if there's still an equity in spending within my own school district. I, I know our, our district split up so that you have an, a fairly a more affluent school and you have one that's more in a high poverty area. So I'd be interested to see if the amount of money that is spent and the resources that are, that are divvied up to both schools are, are equitable in nature or are they equal in nature. Because I can tell you that the school in the high poverty area needs more, or more, needs more resources than that which is in, in the more affluent area. So mm-hmm. I think just across a district-wise... You know, within my own district. Yeah. Uh, well, an interesting, interesting conversation and a, a very uh, powerful report. It is 158 pages long, but you can read the executive summary, um, or you could get a group of friends together and and assign chapters and then talk about it like we just did. Stay tuned. We are going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, <laughs> which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. <laughs> Luann. Poor Luann. Yeah. Typhoid Luann here. Yeah. Those mics are always hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's totally fine. It's, we, you know, they, they, we, everyone's got the flu in Missouri and Kansas. It's fine. Yeah. We, we really appreciate that you're here. You're here now. and you're present. You have it now. <laughs> <laughs> like us at Facebook. Follow uh, us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe. Leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe. Leave us a review and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Maddie, what are your kids into? Um, there's this thing on Musical.ly where... Um, do you know what Musical.ly is? I don't know what Musical.ly is. Okay, back it up, back it up. <laughs> it's um, an app on your phone, kind of like, it's a little viney. Like, vine, do you know what vine is? I'm yes, just I, I do know, you know what vine is. I, I do know what vine is, literally yeah. just trying, <laughs> trying to get your prior knowledge activated. <laughs> um, it's a little bit like vine. You, it, it plays a short clip of music, and you lip sync over that. Okay. 
And then, like, people vote on who did it the best. So your students like this. They like it. But the specific one they like off Musical.ly is one um, where you sing chicken nuggets, and that's it. And so, like, in the middle of the day, one person will sing it as they're, like, they'll just be doing their math. And I'll hear a little voice go, chicken nuggets. And then, and then someone from across the room will respond. And soon enough, I have like 50 people singing chicken nuggets. And they just moved from chicken nuggets to singing burning mac and cheese. And that's it. That's Lu- it. Luann, what are your kids into? <laughs> um, my students tell me that um, on Snapchat... They can send each other their Fortnite scores, and I asked what Fortnite was, and apparently that's a game. I don't know very much more than that, but it seems to be really popular (laughs) to Snapchat what the actual scores are to each other. And then when I ask why, and they go, well, because you want to see who's got the best scores, so you just Snapchat each other's scores. And so, you know, um, I'm somebody who's um, still trying to find out from my nieces at home um, how I you actually Maddie, send a video. I, I believe Snapchat. Maddie is Googling Fortnite right now. Okay. It's two weeks. I know that. It's two weeks, right? A Fortnite. One giant map, a battle bus, Fortnite uh, building skills, and destructible environments combined with intense PvP combat. That sounds awesome. All right, Jason, <laughs> what are your kids into? <laughs> I asked my freshmen what are kids into these days, and they said, let me show you the way. And so the way is a new meme. It's a Ugandan knuckle from the Sonic the Hedgehog game. And so now there's all these memes across the across the globe specifically looking at Dewey. I think it's D-A-W-A-E. Do you know Dewey? Know That's right. Uh, and then also for the viewers, there's a new national trivia game called HQ that you can set up and compete against a million people across the world. Yeah, don't get that started. Yeah, Jason. it's awesome. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> all right, well, thanks to our teachers yeah. this week, Maddie Burkemper, Luann Fox. I hope you feel better, Luann. Jason Staliga, thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Oh, that was a good one this time.